from the virtual newsroom of Impact Alpha. This is your Impact Briefing for Friday, July 2nd. I'm Monique Aiken. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Michael McAfee, President and CEO of PolicyLink, a national research and action institute advancing racial and economic equity. Hi, Michael. Thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure to be with you. But first, here's what you need to know from this week in Impact Investing. Impact investors are thinking globally, and some are acting globally as well. In Central America, fund managers like Root Capital, Pomona Impact, and Alterna are part of USAID's Guatemala Initiative. They are working with the Biden administration to support entrepreneurs and businesses in renewable energy and agriculture, water and sanitation, health and education. The idea is to tackle the root causes of migration by helping people build futures in their home communities. And Africa was home to at least half of the world's 10 fastest growing economies last year. Many U.S. investors hear Africa and think risk. Joseph Boateng, the Ghana-born chief investment officer of Casey Family Programs, writes in Impact Alpha that U.S. investors who are not looking at investing in Africa are at best limiting their opportunity and at worst failing to fulfill their duties as fiduciaries. Consolidation continues in the sustainable investing industry. For many firms, the answer to the buy or build question is buy. Connected Asset Management acquired Bethnal Green Ventures, the early stage impact tech VC firm in London. And JP Morgan acquired OpenInvest, which built a robo-investing platform that advisors can use to help clients customize ESG portfolios. If you have the impression that impact deals and funds are getting bigger, you're right. Enterprise Community Partners closed on $229 million for its Affordable and Workforce Housing Equity Fund. The fund supplements Enterprise's Equitable Path Forward initiative to catalyze $3.5 billion to diversify the real estate industry. Achieve Partners raised $180 million for its Putting America Back to Work Fund. The plan is to acquire businesses that provide apprenticeships in industries with skill shortages like healthcare, information technology, and move workers into high-quality jobs. And APIS and Heritage raised $30 million for its buyout fund to help businesses with large workforces of color transition to employee ownership. In the pipeline, a Midwest sewer and pipe services company and a janitorial enterprise in the Northeast. And finally, on this week's Reconstruction Podcast, I spoke with Latresa McLaughlin ryan of the Atlanta Wealth Building Initiative about place-based strategies to close racial wealth gaps. And, and when I talk about community wealth, really at the core of that is building wealth in a way that doesn't that doesn't extract from community for individual gain, but has a responsibility to community, has a responsibility to ensuring that, you know, everyone in the community has not just an opportunity, but has a reality of wealth. So Michael, you joined Impact Alpha's call this week, Capitalism Reimagined featuring insights from a great cast of thinkers, including you and your colleague at PolicyLink, Mahalet Gatacho, as well as Leo Strine, Fran Siegel, Andres Vanelli, and others. So what were some of your key takeaways from that conversation? Some of the key takeaways for me was that this, um, the design of our economy is not sustainable. Um, and it was refreshing to hear um, business leaders coming to the conclusion that we can strengthen our nation by continuing to evolve our economy to be more just and fair. That's a rarity, but that was my biggest takeaway. And it's really important because business leaders have a skill set that is unique for this moment. They have the ability to bend laws and regulations to their will. And quite frankly, that's what's needed 
um, for the 100 million in this nation who are economically insecure. That's one in three people who live below 200% of poverty. So when we talk about evolving the economy, it's not just a moral issue anymore. It is a national security issue. It is a, a, a strength of our democracy issue. And that's why it was so exciting to hear because a business, the business sector has joined with civil society and the federal government to understand that that population, that 100 million must be lifted up into the middle class and beyond. So what does that mean for adding the E to ESG, as someone on the call mentioned, or having the S stand for share the wealth? I think it's fundamental. You know, the reality is this this nation is an experiment and there is an invitation embodied in our founding documents to continue to perfect it. And one of the things that we must evolve from is this hierarchy of human value that says we don't really share deeply with those who are poor. Um, we've designed a nation intentionally to be exactly what it is, and we can do better. We're making progress, and we can continue to make progress. But this economy will not be sustained if you keep leaving one in three people behind, especially as this nation becomes a nation predominantly of people of color. And that's really important because we never really stop to ask ourselves, if you found a nation on genocide, stolen land, and slave labor, you never really stop to apologize for it or to really correct the institutions and the laws and regulations to solve for that. What happens when those people become the dominant population in a nation? The very people who you've never loved, you've tried to deny opportunity, what will become of your nation? And that is really the question at hand right now. The demographic shifts, they're not going to be changed. They're not going to stop. And so the reality is now a nation that is built on the things that I just described has so much promise if we can get beyond those toxic aspects of our creation. And that's really the work at hand. And that's why I was excited to be a part of the session earlier this week. Rio Stein, the former Chief Justice of Delaware Supreme Court and this week's Agent of Impact, flagged the need to distribute more of the gains from economic growth and productivity increases to workers rather than shareholders. So one of the things to keep in mind is the best thing that corporate America and corporations can do for black people in the United States is to pay all people a better wage. That will be a non-racially specific way of reducing inequality because it will have a disproportionately beneficial impact on black people. So the concept that you all have shared, the curb cut effect, is really about changing the narrative, shifting the way that people think about what is good for me, good for you. Can you share a little bit more about how that um, framing has freed people to actually think about how we do this change that you're talking about? Absolutely. You know, the curb cut effect is really um, a signal that there, there are significant moments in our nation's history where when we focused on those most in need, they inert benefits to everyone, even if there were signals of exclusion baked in. You know, the curb cuts on those sidewalks is a perfect example. Those of us who travel a lot traverse sidewalks and love having that little indentation folks with different physical abilities are able to navigate cities um, more effectively in their wheelchairs. Think about FedEx and UPS drivers who traverse those sidewalks now with ease as they carry carts of packages to our homes and our buildings. And that's really important. Um, and we've done this throughout our nation. Think about it. The white middle class was built with FHA, homeowner mortgage insurance, and the GI Bill. 
targeting those most in need that were white as they came back from World War II. The only problem is they excluded us. Now, when they did open up that, the, the ability for us to participate in those things, they lifted us as well. And so what we're trying to signal is that if we think about what makes this nation great is when it designs public policy for specific groups, it is transformative. Whether it's bad policy or good policy, it transforms in one way or the other. And the curb cut is a signal to show us that, you know, when we think about that 100 million, we do have markers of how to do this. We built the white middle class with targeted public policy. And I'm always fascinated by folks who are up in arms when we try to target Black folks specifically, or people of color with public policy, when in fact, redlining is race-based policy. Our housing policy in America is race-based policy. Our investment policy in this nation is race-based policy. Our farming policy is race-based policy. This nation was built on race-based policy. Our immigration policy is race-based policy, and yet we don't see it. And so this is a perfect example of we have to get that higher. That's what that hierarchy of human value looks like. It says if you're targeting white America, it's no problem. But if you try to target people of color, you can't. Well, the reality is this. Then you can't talk about closing the racial wealth gap as an example. How can you close the racial wealth gap when you've had 400 years of intentionally stripping wealth from black people? <laughs> you're not going to do that with charity. You're not going to do that with initiative. It was land zoning laws that allowed us not to buy property. I mean, think about it. Near where I live in Berkeley, California, in the 70s, Black folks couldn't buy homes there. You could buy pretty much a mansion right today. It's a mansion for a hundred something thousand dollars. Today, it's about 4.5 million plus. So you can't close the way, well, racial wealth gap without significant public policy that targets black and brown people when you excluded them in that game. It's just like playing Monopoly, right? You can't let me be ten, come in 10 rounds in with no money and think I'm going to catch up. It just doesn't happen. And so this is what the nation needs to sit with now. It can continue this course or it can continue to step into the beautiful invitation to perfect it. But one way or the other, we're going to either have positive outcomes or negative ones. And we're seeing that tension right now in this nation. And that is really the question that we are troubling. Which direction do we want to go? And what I'm excited about in my work is I'm excited about being able to hold the all in the equity definition, because quite frankly, anti-Black racism is hurting white folks more than um, ever now. If you read a book like Dying of Whiteness, you see it. And the last thing I'll say here is this, the way it practically plays out is in Oakland and San Francisco, that the region where I reside, white folks who make good incomes can't afford these cities. They can't afford them because they can't afford their rent or mortgage and private education. And think about that. The reason why they have to put their school, kids in private school is because we neglect public education because we didn't want folks to be educated next to us. This investment hurts everybody. And I and as you think about um, really your role, you're talking about being excited about your work, you are all, you policy link that is, 
are in the center of quite a number of collaboratives. And one of the ways that we say at the part of the reconstruction, that's other podcasts that I run, it's about radical collaboration in order to do this next normal differently. So you all are now paired up and partnered in many interesting new ways than you had been historically in your work. Can we take that as a positive signal that we might have the chance of getting it right? And by right, I mean more just. Yes, I think we are getting it right in this nation. It's just messy. Um, You think about it. We have made change in this country. Um, But that arc of the moral universe doesn't continue to bend unless we're deliberate about it. We can't just assume it. And what I'm excited about is to actually see corporate America come to racial equity in some powerful ways right now. They're getting it. And that's what's needed right now, that corporate leadership joined with civil society and the federal government. We've never had a critical mass of professionals who understand racial equity to be joined like this. We're ready. But we've also never had such a beautiful multiracial coalition of folks fighting for more, a more just and fair society for everyone. That is our superpower, right? <laughs> that talking about anti-Black racism is not about exclusion. It is about being able to wring out those aspects of our founding that don't serve us well today. And in wringing them out, ushering in a new era of prosperity that benefits everyone. So as we come out of this post-COVID era, post-racial reckoning, post-economic fallout from all of those things, we know that sometimes the post-disaster recovery makes people worse off. So. Who specifically do we need to design for? You mentioned the um, 100 million economically insecure, but is there a prototype person that we need to hold in our imaginations that we need to make this world better for in order to let this rising tide of federal stimulus and other ways that folks are investing in a post-COVID world actually lift all the boats and not just the yachts? You know, it's the worker that works two jobs and still can't afford to live in most cities in this country because the wages are so low, whether they're black, brown, whatever. That's who we're talking about. We're talking about folks who work a a full-time job in this nation and still can't afford to live. Think about that. that. That's who that 100 million represents. It's those folks who are no longer unable to work and we choose to provide no assistance for them. It's the folks who are unemployed, and yet we've designed our unemployment insurance systems to intentionally not work because of the racist trope of the Black welfare queen, which is not true, but it's still highly effective. It's for those people. It's for the people that you see walking down the street that you're afraid of. (laughs) It's the folks who you don't know. It's the folks that you're not in relationship with. It's the folks that you think are shiftless and lazy simply because they don't have resources. It's those people. It's as Howard Thurman would say, it's for the disinherited, the disenfranchised, and the dispossessed. This current administration, they have got a lot to contend with. Climate, climate justice, infrastructure, record-breaking temperatures happening in the Pacific Northwest with fire season about to start, the tragic building collapse in Miami, um, canary in our coal mine for our crumbling infrastructure that was also disinvested in for too long. Can we see them getting it right? I mean, you mentioned the business community, but we need both sides at the table. And what is our chances? What are our chances? 
I'm hopeful, but I'm concerned because this is where business has been very effective. Business had chosen over the last 40 plus years to weaken the ability of government. That was an intentional strategy and it won out. And so whether we're talking about local government or federal government, you see governments barely being able to attend to most basic needs like health and safety. You see, we couldn't even get PPE out. PPP missed the mark on so many small businesses. So the business community does have a responsibility here because in many aspects of the business community championed a weakened government, a less funded government. And now what you see happening is we've also seen a business community that has tolerated and still tolerates a very toxic way of governing. Think about January 6th, and yet business still funds those leaders. Think about the 300 plus laws to restrict my ability to vote and business still funds those leaders. And so the reality is this administration is locked by the rules of the game. The filibuster is a powerful tool. So we can't project all of this into an administration when we set the rules up for the administration not to be successful. They're doing the best they can. This, this president has been quite transformative. Now the question is, will others, will we join with this administration and, and help Congress understand what we will tolerate and what we will not tolerate? Think about it. The previous administration was able to pass the trillion dollar tax cut that benefited me and no, no real pushback against that. Now we're talking about infrastructure and really helping everyday people. And it's a huge debate. And this is what I mean when I say we have to accept the invitation. So you can't talk to me about results. And yet you want to have crumbling infrastructure. And the only reason you believe that it's OK is because you don't travel around the world to see that other countries are outpacing us. Their infrastructure is far superior than ours. So when you use slogans like make America great, you've lost that greatness when you stopped investing in your nation, right? We have a strip mining nation now. We build things, we build them as cheaply as possible, and then we try to get out of the deal as fast as possible. Think about Miami. That's a result of limiting government's ability to be restrictive when people, when developers do bad things. Right. That's that strip mining culture. Get in, throw up as much many buildings as you want. Everybody makes out like bandits and you leave nonprofit. You leave the, the homeowners to have to suffer the consequences. You've seen this in many cities where you saw all these downtowns come back with condos, et cetera. Again, in my region, witnessing million dollar condos in a building that's leaning in San Francisco. Right. That's what strip mining culture gets you. And then everybody just points the finger. We're better than that. We're better than that. And that's what this moment is about. It's not about demonizing each other. It is about saying, can we get in relationship with each other to create a just and fair society, one in which everyone can participate, prosper, and reach their full potential? And that simply means that we've got to um, own some of our behaviors that are not working for us anymore and be committed to evolving them. But it also means that you got to love each other enough to see each other's humanity and want to see them prosper as well. In this progress that we are making, how do we preserve it? How do we make sure it's permanent and durable and, and bring the folks along who need to be co-signing this with their, with their skills, talents, that we can build this broad based of will to do it, to keep it and to make fairness and justice, not curse words and really the benchmark. 
Well, that's what I've been excited about over the last year. I see white America stepping up and saying, I'm not ashamed of these words anymore. And, and they're starting to join with us and fight. And I think this, that's why I say it's a new coalition. It's a new army out here now. And I think that's the first thing. The second thing, though, is also to understand that this, this liberation has to happen through design, equity by design. Equity by design is not charity. Charity looks like passing water bottles out in Flint, Michigan still, instead of passing a, an equitable bond package to replace the pipes. And yet we're still poisoning in kids because they still take showers or baths. And so our job has to shift from a charity mindset to a liberation mindset. That's the first thing. And we then have to want to remake our laws, our regulations, our customs, and our institutions to be the thing that they've never been designed for. They weren't designed for this multiracial democracy that we have. And that is the work for us. That's the invitation that I'm talking about. A real house cleaning. Asking the question, how do our laws and our regulations and our customs and our institutions need to be enhanced? remade to serve the all in the equity definition. That's our work, to not just do charity work, which is momentary relief, but it's important, but it is to do the work that makes opportunity less random in this nation. Charity means I get out of poverty, but my sisters did not. We're better than randomness. And when you look at Ross Chetty's data, this is really important because what it's signaling is where you born are born now is pretty much where you're going to stay, which means the American dream is dead and for all intents and purposes. And we don't even want to own that yet. The American dream is dead for all intents and purposes. And it really doesn't matter what color your skin, where you're born is where you're going to stay. And if we want to change that harsh reality that is only known right now in policy circles, then we must be about redesigning the nation from a legal and regulatory standpoint. Well, let's sit with that for a little while and think about what that means for our ability to create a new imagination for ourselves if it's possible. Because as you suggested, this never existed before. So we need to think differently, imagine differently, be inspired by folks like you and the work at PolicyLink for leading the way. So thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's going to do it for your Impact Briefing this week. More all day at impactalpha.com. Subscribe to get full access to the site and the daily brief. Right now, we're offering our best deal of the year. New subscribers get half off. Go to impactalpha slash subscribe and use Impact50. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our producer, Isaac Silk. I'm Monique Aiken, Managing Director of TIP, the Investment Integration Project. Make sure to check back for next week's briefing. And until then... Take care.